0: Welcome to Streaming Into the Void, where we discuss all the streaming news for the week ending August 12th, 2023. This week, Disney gambles on its future. I'm Kim Hollis, digital advertising guru and somehow still embroiled in the great treadmill controversy. It may never end. With me are Tim Bridie, content creator, gamer, and human paladin. Wait, no, half-elf, bard.
1: Wait, no, uh, dwarf barbarian. Wait, uh, no, t Sorcerer. Wait, wait, no.
0: Uh, also, come back to me later. David Mumpower, author of Behind the Ride, streaming media analyst, and someone recently developing the ability to write about streaming media in his sleep. I woke up, there were four sentences I don't remember typing, and they were pretty good, so. <laughs> and the podcast is produced and edited by Raul Burial, who's ready for 100-degree temperatures, so long as his AC
2: holds out. That's called foreshadowing, kids. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh.
0: In our deep dive this week, Hollywood and Wall Street held their breath as Disney reported their quarterly earnings. But Disney wasn't going to make us wait, making a big announcement a day before their earnings call. David?
3: Disney has always said it will never get involved in gambling, and that's a completely understandable decision because you don't really think gambling and Mickey Mouse. However, cynics have pretty much lambasted this uh, the company the last couple of days because now they've done exactly that kind of sort of maybe really this is a glorified licensing deal. Allow me to explain. There is a new product called ESPN Bet. An existing sports book had tried. To ramp up its, you know, just incredible market penetration by using a company named Barstool Sports. And if you know anything about Barstool, it's not my purpose to cast dispersions on others. Let's just say there's a lot of controversy there. Anybody who knows anything about gambling realizes the fact that it is probably the most regulated industry in all of business. The last thing you want is a lot of people sniffing around and looking at you carefully when somebody is creating controversy. That's all they're doing, which is making investigators hang around you too much. Do you know who has the best brand reputation on the planet? Disney and its offshoot, ESPN. So what they have done is they have sold Barstool Sports back to the person who founded the company for a dollar. Said I wasn't going to cast aspersions. That guy's nuts. But he's going to make a (laughs) lot of money from this. And meanwhile, they've switched out the... Toxic Barstool sports brand for ESPN, which means now they're going to call everything they do in their gambling ESPN bet. And for its trouble, all Disney has to do is sometimes talk about various gambling options on ESPN, which it was already doing anyway through DraftKings and FanDuel connections. So, from Disney's perspective, all that's happened here is somebody has agreed to pay them $1.5 billion over the next decade or something that, you know, Disney was already doing anyway. And there's also, while it's unlikely to happen, a vesting option in stock that could be worth another $500 million, which means that somewhere between 150 to $200 million has just hit Disney's wallet right now and will continue to do so each of the next nine years. And all they had to do was agree to let someone else use the ESPN brand for their stuff. It's a pretty good deal, really.
2: So is that just a little bit of misdirection then, David, coming out the day before their quarterly earnings to tell us, look at this great news. We're going to make a whole bunch of free money just by licensing out ESPN for gambling and pay no attention to our quarterly earnings that are coming out the following day. That was
3: absolutely the anticipation I had when the news broke. I was immediately braced for the absolute worst with the earnings report because it is the kind of deal you make as a distraction. That's not actually how it played out though. So uh, Disney's earnings call was perfectly fine. As a matter of fact, I was surprised and caught off guard by how relaxed and confident Bob Iger sounded after what's really been one of the worst months of his professional career, no exaggeration. Disney did not make its revenue forecast, but it only missed like $300 million. It's a fractional thing. Their earnings per share, depending on how you look at it, it was either a loss this time because of write-offs or it beat expectations by about eight cents. So in other words, it was basically a financial draw. And more importantly, from our perspective, Roel, Disney thinks it's got the math figured out on direct-to-consumer, doesn't it?
2: If by that you mean that they figure out the right price in order to make the books balance yeah they're increasing the price on all of their streaming tiers in hopes that they're not going to lose any subscribers and that they're going to be able to maintain some growth we knew they were going to lose a lot of subscribers in india with their disney hot star product david how bad was it
3: oh baby they lost 24 percent of their existing disney plus hot star subscribers which means that if we wait long enough The conversation that's always awkward for us, it's just going to go away. Disney has basically decided to bury this particular product for the time being. I mean, if they completely sell at this point, it would not surprise me in the least. Disney figured out that they weren't making enough money and average revenue per user, the statistic we call ARPU, it had been 72% per customer, which is terrible. And then it dropped to 59%, which means it was terrible to start and then it was getting worse. And that's just not the type of customer that's going to make any difference on the bottom line. So, what you going to hear is disney lost a massive number of subscribers this quarter which is absolutely true it is down to 146.1 million subscribers at this point and you would normally think oh no they're going backwards this is a disaster the actual money they're making on subscriber changes i think i figured out that it was something like 50 million in a calendar year we're talking about the most Fractional amount of money because Disney's North American product did better while they lost all these Star India customers. It is basically Disney deciding to triage. And Iger even said this during the earnings call they're going to prioritize international marketplaces in order of, of profitability, which means they have tried with Hotstar and it hasn't worked. So for the time being, they're going to try other markets instead.
2: Yeah, at this point, that's the right approach. We are well past the whole growth at any cost paradigm where streamers were willing to lose money hand over fist in order to grow their subscriber base. Refocusing their efforts on more profitable markets such as in uh, Japan and Korea seems to really be the the right approach for Disney. It's also where a lot of uh, their content is being created right now.
3: Yeah, and I think to a certain extent, this ties back to something we've discussed with the box office of Elemental, which is now Pixar's most successful film ever in South Korea. You've got one market that has been very receptive to Disney storytelling, and you have another one that has basically been borderline adversarial for anything that wasn't IPL cricket. So they're going to stop banging their head against the wall. And we knew this a year ago. We have been reporting on this, even though we realize most North Americans don't really care that much about IPL cricket. And we're now pretty much to the finish line here. There are going to be two more quarters where Disney loses hot star subscribers. And this circles back to a conversation Raul and I had, I guess it was probably six months ago at this point, where he mentioned that Disney had probably lost its most subscribers ever because of hot star and i said no 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 that hasn't happened yet this was the time where they lost the most and we'll still see slower drips next month and the month after that but at this point the cricket fans are off of hot star
2: and for those who have stayed on with disney streaming services you can expect to start paying more in what is it october
3: Correct. Disney Plus and Hulu have announced a very significant price change.
2: You can expect to start paying as much as $3 more per streaming service, whether you're using Disney Plus or Hulu or ESPN Plus. The new Disney Plus without ads price is $14, where it used to be $11. That's more than a 20% price increase. That's a lot. I guess they've done the math and they figured that they're going to be able to retain customers, or at least they're going to be able to retain enough. Customers to offset the people who unsubscribe.
3: Yeah, Iger actually said during the earnings column, I mean, and he point blank said two things that I was a little surprised he acknowledged. And the first one was they're emboldened about price increases because the churn was so insignificant the last time they raised prices. They kind of looked at the data and went, Wow, our customers absolutely believe they're not paying enough for this. They don't mind paying a few dollars more. So they're raising it again. I mean, you have to realize we're now with. Disney Plus without ads talking about nearly double the price than it was just three years ago. And yet Disney feels very confident they're not going to lose anything. And the other point Iger made, and this really surprised me, acknowledged it, they are making no secret about the fact they want people signing up for the ad tier. Iger basically came out and said he is going to incentivize customers to be on that ad tier because that's how Disney will make its profit with direct to consumer.
1: Yeah, that's what jumped out at me with the price, looking at the price changes, they raised the price on the ad-free tiers. They did not raise the prices on the tier with with ads. So you can get Disney Plus and Hulu for eight bucks a month. You can even sign up for them at the same time for ten bucks if you want both with uh, no ads. That'll be twenty bucks a month. That's where the future is: is the streaming services with ads. It makes me laugh that they're incentivizing you going for the cheaper tier to get
2: some ads. Although, of course, we know that's because they actually make more money off of those tiers. Oh yes, yeah, absolutely. The, yeah, with the advertising revenue. Yes, the
1: ARPU goes way up with the ads.
2: <laughs> yeah, but... <sighs> It's the cynical side of me, but the analog I see here is the prices to Disney parks. How long is it before we're paying, I don't know, forty-nine ninety-nine a month for Disney Plus? How long before we're paying 7999 for Disney Plus? It seems that no price is high enough for a Disney fan. They will pay whatever Disney asks for. And I think this is Iger acknowledging that and recognizing that Disney fans are a cash cow. If you're gonna pay eleven dollars a month for Disney Plus, you'll probably pay $14. Heck. Six. 12 months from now, you're probably paying $20. Yeah,
3: and we mentioned this very early in the podcast. Disney initially offered frankly, a comically good deal where you could sign up for three years of Disney Plus in advance. And then they used all kinds of other methods to hotshot their streaming service. And now that they have done that, now that they have gotten lots and lots of subscribers, and I mean, we're still talking about 146 million people who subscribe to this service. Now they're going to start messing with the pricing to figure out who really wants it versus the people who are on the fence about it. And it's going to be just like Disney does its theme parks from now on, where they will raise or lower the price depending on demand and the current economic climate at the time. It is a proven methodology for Disney, and now they're ready to implement it with their streaming. And that's why, I'm going to stress this again, Iger just looked like the storm had passed during this conference call.
2: And it's worth mentioning that Disney has also indicated that they're going to start cracking down on password sharing. So if there are families out there that are multi-homed, your kid going to college or some other similar scenario such as that, you can expect that you're going to have to start paying even more for multiple different subscriptions. And once again, the expectation is those people will subscribe. And so where once Disney had one subscriber, now they're going to have two or three.
3: Yeah, Iger actually explicitly stated this is going to happen during fiscal 2024, which starts in three months, which means somewhere from four months to 15 months from now, this is going to be an issue for North American households. I'm deeply conflicted about this because we all know, and we've discussed this multiple times on the podcast, the technology for checking this stuff isn't good. And with Disney, there's a different Factor. You don't want to alienate customers because we're talking about a $10 product. You don't want to know how much money people like Kim and I spend on Disney each year? You really don't. And Disney doesn't want to be alienating these people over 10 or $15 monthly. That's the challenge here. These Disney Vacation Club members, these annual pass holders, the people who spend all their time at the parks and have every new product on Shop Disney, you have to keep them happy. There's a dance here. It's not as simple for Disney as it is for Netflix.
2: This is a little bit off topic, but unlike Netflix, as you pointed out, David, Disney has multiple different types of subscription offerings, whether it's D23 or Disney Vacation Club or annual pass holders. You'd think that they would be able to figure out some kind of combined bundle of services, even family plans of services. I sure hope that that's where this is going. It seems like a great opportunity for Disney to start bundling multiple different services together and really... Really increase awareness and increase the value of each of their uh, services once they're all in a single bundle.
0: Paramount also reported their quarterly financials this week.
2: How did that go? Um, not well. Uh <laughs> The week started with the news that Paramount was selling their book publishing division, Simon & Schuster, to private investment firm KKR for $1.62 billion. There's a lot to unpack with this news alone. Paramount had tried to sell Simon & Schuster to Penguin Random House, but the Justice Department was successful in blocking that sale, which was valued at $2.2 billion. So it is going to get sold, but for roughly $0.6 billion less than Paramount wanted. KKR is not notorious for buying distressed assets with borrowed money, cutting them to the bone to pay off the debt and then dumping the company. I've read that they're actually the company on which the vulture capitalists in the movie Wall Street are based. So the people at Simon & Schuster are probably updating their resumes as we speak. But as uh, we mentioned, uh, Paramount's a massive conglomerate whose stock price really doesn't reflect its actual values. So this was a smart move on their part, particularly in of their quarterly earnings, which were terrible. And we've seen recently terrible earnings means stock price goes up. Why? Because surely a company that's performing poorly is ripe for a buyout.
3: Yeah, this is absolutely the speculation we've been having for the past few podcasts. Paramount has gotten to the point where it is better in theory than it is in practice. And so a lot of people with deep pockets are looking at it going, ooh, that's an interesting price. And we fully expect movement in calendar 2024 20, at
2: this point, don't we, roll? Yeah. Paramount has certainly been trying to sell off assets. There was the news some time ago that they were looking to maybe sell off BET, although that does not appear to have materialized because they're probably asking for more than anyone's willing to pay. They also previously turned down a rather generous offer for Showtime. Definitely Sherry Redstone and the people running Paramount think that they have a company that's worth more than the book value. Unfortunately, how they're going to get to the real price or what they feel is the real price of their company is hard to determine because really these quarterly earnings were not impressive. Their direct-to-consumer, which is a euphemism for streaming, lost only... $424 $424 million this last quarter, which is good compared to the $445 million they lost the prior quarter. Overall, Paramount beat estimates on revenue and earnings, but that's only because estimates were so low. Both earnings and revenue were dramatically lower than they were the same period last year. It's worth noting that despite merging Showtime into Paramount Plus this past quarter, the combined streaming services were only able to show an increase of 700,000 subscribers, putting them at a rather stagnant $61 But on the upside, Warner Brothers Discovery merged HBO Max with Discovery Plus last quarter, and they lost subscribers. So Paramount at least did one thing right.
3: Folks, let me just tell you, it is an absolute joy to be talking about the performances of streaming services right now. An absolute joy if you like human
2: misery. It's unfortunate because Paramount Plus has one of the best shows on streaming right now with Star Trek Strange New Worlds.
3: When you hear these numbers, you have to realize it means cuts. If they're selling assets at distressed prices, they're going to at some point start cutting things. And that It gets really uncomfortable when you have really good content. And at this point, as ridiculous as it sounds to me, as a longstanding anti-Akiva Goldsman person, the current Star Trek is really shockingly good. And I'm including Lower Decks in that as well. They're finding content people want here, and yet they're not making the money they
0: should. And it is really worrisome. All right, Tim, take us into the box office.
1: Well, you can't stop the Barbenheimer train. You can only hope to contain it at this point. As Barbie has crossed as of Fr- with Friday's box office, $500 million domestically. And Oppenheimer is at $250 million. So that's $750 million, basically saving 2023's box office almost single-handedly. That's pretty incredible.
3: Right? <laughs> The fact that this happened, seemingly out of nowhere, is just one of the most remarkable stories you can imagine. AMC was able to get more runway this week because of the judges' ruling. I'm not going to get into the the boring details of that, but Mm -hmm. AMC, in basically a month, went from we're dying to we live! We live! Yeah, and it's
1: literally just those two movies. I mean, we we did have two openers do all right last weekend. The uh, Meg two did finish with thirty million, which was better than we thought. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles: Mutant Mayhem twenty eight million, so not awful, but uh, you don't really want to look at the new opener this weekend. The Last Voyage of the Demeter two point six million. Oh dear.
3: We should also talk about another aspect of the Meg 2, which is something that frankly surprised everyone. It became the third largest opener in China since the start of the pandemic, which means from 2020 to 2023, it's one of the top three. Now, Chinese box office, American companies don't get a lot of that revenue in most cases, so it's going to be somewhat exaggerated, but we had indicated the Meg 2 was in trouble Mm-hmm. If this continues, it's going to be a very solid money winner. which there will uh, be a Meg 3. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Before the pandemic, international box office was in the process of taking over, especially because of China, almost exclusively because of China. And it had not really recovered, even though you know domestic box office had. Uh, and that was worrying for the future. But this is very interesting that how this one was just able to break out like that. You know, we keep saying this is why these sequels exist. This is why you're getting another Fast and Furious movie. This is why you're getting another Transformers movies, because even though they did okay domestically, they were blockbusters internationally and largely because of China. And then that did not really hold for most recent releases. It's surprising to see how this did extremely well and then has it at 150 million (laughs) worldwide already.
3: Yeah, and that's kind of the point we've tried to make that is arcane and we understand it. Film studios have been marked for international box office for a while because that's where more than half of the money comes from, at least the box office. The revenue splits are messy and I don't want to get into that. But that didn't happen once the pandemic started, which means all of these productions where they had not done cost control and they had just escalated and escalated and escalated production budgets, suddenly the production budgets were massive in size and they were not making back the money because domestically they were just doing okay. And the reason they existed existed was international, which wasn't helping at all. This is the first pre-2020 type of performance we've legitimately seen during the pandemic. The other stuff that has done well overseas, it's what you would have expected. This is one that is kind of, I mean, I I said it the other day uh, in a different forum and I meant it. Hollywood woke up Monday morning and was just like, what just happened with the Meg in China? And the answer is it co-starred someone named Wu Jing, and Wu Jing is the wolf warrior guy, if that means anything, to diehard cinephiles. And he has basically just become the most important person in the world because the Chinese government will market things with Wu Jing in them. And so every American company is going to try and hire him for everything for a while.
1: So it's nice to have some other slightly good news. That's that's not just Barbie and Oppenheimer. <laughs> Barbie's going to win another weekend, 10 million on Friday. Again, like I said, crossing 500 million domestically. Oppenheimer is still in, in second, 5.1 million. It's all we can talk about because it's just been, dom- these movies have been now dominating the box office for a month and have just really turned around the theater's fortunes, as David was saying. They're going to need it because it, it doesn't look good for the for the future, as we saw by this weekend's opener. And uh, is that next week, Blue Beetle?
3: Yes. Yeah, and Blue Beetle is starting to track a little bit better. I, mm-hmm. I've got hopes that it's going to make north of 30 million pokes don't you know shoot the messenger if Mm -hmm. it doesn't actually get there but it's not as pessimistic as it looked a month ago that's good but just (sighs) the whole thing with barbie heimer makes me feel like a scene from the perfect storm i don't actually know have you ever seen the perfect storm tom Uh, I actually have not, but I
1: I think I kind of know where you're going.
3: There is a moment in the film where it looks like they've escaped, and then an even worse wave approaches a distance, and one of the characters says something like, she's not letting us go, referring to the storm, and that's the moment you know, oh wait, that was false hope, it's over. When you look at what's out there for the next 18 months, if these writer strikes and actor strikes do not get settled quickly... I'm an optimistic person by nature, and I'm scared to death by what's on the forecast.
2: It should be noted without getting into too much detail, there is a cynical perspective that's materializing right now that the studios wanted to get through their quarterly earnings before they were willing to seriously negotiate with the writers and actors. And now that those quarterly earnings are over and they've made all the noise they needed to make about, look at all this positive cash flow we have, they are starting to negotiate in earnest. The writers have actually received an offer that is being considered. And so we'll we'll see where that goes. There's uh, There's some speculation that the goal is to wrap up the strikes by Labor Day as a kind of, I don't know, symbolic date. So we'll see really where they're going with this
1: yeah that's that's a good point rule like i said as we as we record this right there was a serious offer presented to the writers so who who knows what's going to happen in the span of a week but yeah if it is prolonged if they don't like this offer and that the two sides are end up being farther apart than we anticipate it's going to get bleak and i think you will start seeing movies move to next year as the studios are going to be forced to stretch out what they have planned that's already filmed
3: yeah and we're already seeing this to an extent deadpool 3 had listed a very ambitious release date and that was because Ryan Reynolds is just like really well recognized for being a total pro, knowing what he wants and getting a principled Mm. photography done quickly. And they were already filming this. And then when the actors went on strike, it got shut down. And now that film is probably looking at a three to six month delay. Disney showed its anticipated releases for the first half of 2024 and Deadpool 3 was no longer listed. That's the type of thing we're talking about here when we say significant delays.
1: Yeah, even uh, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning part, two which we had thought were being filmed concurrently but it turns out they have not quite finished filming part two just yet and that had to stop when the strike occurred for the actors so there's a chance even though they've they said you know end of june 2024 if this goes on for a couple more months that could be problematic for that release date as well
3: dear hollywood get it together (laughs) (laughs) but david
1: zaslav needs another bonus (laughs) All right, well, All hopefully right. we have, yeah, we have more good news. That's just not Barbenheimer soon, <laughs> but we'll, we'll see. But I I guess, should we do the ratings, Kim?
0: Let's talk about the ratings.
1: All right, we have the Nielsen Streaming Ratings for Monday, July 10th to Sunday, July 16th, 2023. And yeah, it's the Nielsen Ratings featuring Suits again, I guess. But let's see what else, what's on the other charts. Not a surprise, the top original show for the week, The Lincoln Lawyer, 1.2 billion minutes for 15 episodes. It was the full week for its the first half of its second season. And we're going to see this again in a few weeks when the second half drops late July, beginning of August. Definitely a big hit for for Netflix. I'm going to guess they can actually read the room and not announce, yeah, we renewed this for season three during a strike, but I'm sure once that's resolved, they
3: vote. Yeah, we have had that interesting insight where we've learned why things don't get renewed. And I mean, from Netflix's perspective, it has to pay people more money as a show gets additional seasons, which completely solves a mystery we've had for a long time about why some seemingly successful shows did not. Didn't get renewed. I think that if you're number one for consecutive weeks, you get an automatic renewal. But I only say, I think. In the olden days, this thing would have been renewed for 10 years already.
1: Right. Yeah, if this was a broadcast TV series, this was your top show. You've extended the contracts as long as you possibly can to lock them up for cheap. But not Netflix. But I, I would actually be really surprised if this didn't get a third season. It's just too popular.
3: Oh, if this were, you know, the glory days of Shonda Rhimes, they'd be trying to figure out how they could put a hospital in a Lincoln. <laughs>
1: But like I said, I think it's just they're actually being smart and not announcing these things during the streams. Dylan second from Prime Video, Jack Ryan, uh, 1.1 billion minutes for 30 episodes. The final... Two episodes of the fourth and final season arrived on the 14th. It was a six-episode season four. They dropped two episodes a week. This is it. This was the full show. It's done. We might see a little bit of a bump next week since this was just a three-day number for the final two episodes, but still not bad. You crack a billion when you're not on Netflix. That's pretty good. And we do have something new in third, quarterback. 853 million minutes for eight episodes. This is Whoa. the... Yeah, this, this is the documentary series about, well, uh, NFL quarterbacks. Uh, the eight episodes arrived on July 12th, and they feature Patrick Mahomes, Kirk Cousins, and Marcus Mariota. That's pretty good. It's most of the week, but that's actually better than I was expecting, and at least it's a documentary that's not about you know a serial killer or something.
3: This production probably isn't possible if it wasn't this, and I'm specifically referencing the fact it is a Peyton Manning production, oh. and we need to allow for the fact that Peyton Manning might be a savant when it comes to what people want to watch involving football because this is a perfect product and i don't think someone like pat mahomes would do this for anybody he would do it for a quarterback he grew up watching like peyton manning
1: uh, the witcher drops to fourth 669 million minutes for 21 total episodes should hang on for a few more weeks Oh, no, we'll see it shoot up, back up in a few more weeks because three more episodes were arriving on July 27th to wrap up the third season and, of course, Henry Cavill's run as Geralt. Uh, we do have something new in fifth, from also from Amazon Prime, so they had a pretty decent week. The Summer I Turned Pretty, 525 million minutes for 10 total episodes.
3: Now we're nude for season three, or as I call it, the summer after the summer after I turn pretty.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Ten episodes because the first three episodes of the second season arrived on the 14th, and it's a uh, weekly from from there to have eight total episodes. The final arriving on the 18th of August, so this may hang on for a while, but that's very good. Yeah, especially since uh, Amazon had enough comments in it to give it another season, which conveniently is actually a, a novel trilogy, so it make, kind of makes sense. They are probably on the hook for the third season. Got to finish out that story and I, it's definitely clearly a hit for them so good I like when we have non-Netflix shows on the originals chart speaking of The Bear from Hulu is still here in 6 524 million minutes for 18 total episodes been here for a couple weeks now and I'm always happy to see it Is a K Cake 2 456 million minutes for its second season uh, Netflix's Black Mirror 370 million minutes 27 episodes in 8th and okay from Disney Plus in ninth, Secret Invasion Four episodes now, 347 20 minutes. So this show is declining as it adds episodes.
0: Uh oh, yeah, yeah. That's not surprising to me at all.
1: Right. We you were kind of predicting this, suggesting that it would happen because it started out with a bang with its first episode, and then it just kind of like, well, okay, that's almost the same number for two episodes, and then almost the same number for three episodes, and now it's down. So this show is actively turning people off. Marvel has has a big miss here, and this is this is bad for Disney Plus, especially concerning what this costs.
3: The one thing I'll say is we have noticed kind of a pattern where the Marvel shows in particular where sometimes people fall behind and then there's like a late rush during the, the week of the finale. So I'm waiting to see on that, but... I think you can tell by our voices, we're not the least bit surprised.
1: I will grant it a binge bump when the fifth and sixth episodes arrive, because we do traditionally see that with weekly releases. But yeah, just the fact that it's dropping as it adds content is never a good sign.
3: As a reminder, $35 an episode. Oh boy, okay. And something new
1: in 10 from Netflix, Hack My Home, 346 million minutes for eight episodes. It's a home restoration series. Reality content, not surprising. Hey, if the strikes go on, maybe we'll just see a whole bunch more of these, unfortunately.
3: I will bite your face off. (laughs) Uh, Well, the good news here is this
1: actually came on July 7th so this is a full week of it rather than like a three-day number so we won't see this again but um, fortunately wait hey what else do they have other than reality if the strikes go on longer than we think
3: oh I've got a great idea we could combine this with too hot for handle where grumpy people who aren't having sex try and renovate their homes without <laughs> killing each other
1: go two seasons make it. <laughs> Over in movies, it is still led by the Outlaws, 840 million minutes. Uh, That's for the full week. Not bad for something that didn't get solidly reviewed. I was actually expecting a uh, bigger decline.
0: Yeah, honestly, I'd say that's pretty good considering it has terrible reviews. Right?
1: Yeah. We kind of wish it would be better, but I'm kind of happy at least it's a 2023 movie. 65, we also saw that arrive last week. 604 million minutes for second place. Sure. Whatever. Why not? That's pretty good improvement.
3: More... all things that's... considered.
1: Yeah, suddenly definitely more people than saw it in theaters, I'm sure. And okay, here we go. Returning to movies in third is Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. 565 million minutes. Now, it's credited to Netflix and Peacock, but I double-checked It's not on Peacock anymore because this is the part of the whole Universal deal where after its theatrical run, it it arrived on Peacock, which made sense. And we saw it when it was on that service. But at four months, it left and arrived on Netflix, where it will remain for 10 months on July 13th. And then it will go back to Peacock for four more months. And then who the hell knows? But this is definitely a bigger number than it ever had on Peacock.
2: So, yeah, I assume what we're seeing here is the last days of it on Peacock and then the first days of it on Netflix. It seems to have happened. Overnight, right. yeah.
1: Right, since technically occurred midweek. So yeah, it left Peacock and then arrived on Netflix on the 13th. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this whole deal that they have never fails to crack me up, but I hope they're making money on it because, boy, well, do they need it. Uh, something else new in fourth, and we expected to see this. Bird Box Barcelona, 384 million minutes. This also premiered on the 14th of July. Just a three-day weekend number. We should see that take a, a jump next week. But now I'm very curious how, you know, how Bird Box did when it first launched. I think that was actually one of their more popular movies at the time. It
0: was, wasn't it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, but, you know, no Sandra Bullock, so why would I see this one?
0: Yeah, well, this is also like a foreign production, too. So it's, Right, yeah, it's, it's actually takes it's place in... It's different, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 yeah, it's an original sequel to the movie, which was based on the, on the novel. But yeah, we, we definitely thought we'd see it here. I expect a higher number next week. Titanic, we saw that return last week because it came back to Netflix at the beginning of July. 294 million minutes. So yeah, we're already under 300, halfway through the list. And okay, from Paramount Plus in six, Transformers Rise of the Beasts, 241 million minutes. We had no idea this was going to show up on Paramount Plus until it did. Right. And then we got emails about it. So, yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, these movies keep coming out of nowhere. Another one that we recently missed, Asteroid City, which apparently premiered on Peacock this weekend.
1: Yep. That was when I loaded up Peacock to check for Puss in Boots. That was front and center, was that Asteroid City was there. Are you doing this on purpose, streaming services? Are you not advertising... Do the studios maybe not want them to advertise when it's coming to the streaming service, thinking that people that will
3: go, well, then I won't see it in theaters. I'll just wait for it to show up on streaming because it's kind of annoying. I want to tie this back to the way we started this discussion today, where we're talking about Bob Iger working so hard to get the math right on this stuff. And then we're talking about Paramount struggling. These are the things you can do better to improve your product. And they're not hard things. These are the just clean up your act. Things. We are Wes Anderson fans. We should not just be randomly finding out that Wes Anderson's new film is now available on streaming. They should be that shouting that from the rooftops.
0: You know, I think back to like when Home Box Office, HBO was sort of new in the zeitgeist and they definitely did a much better job of saying, hey, we've got this movie that was in theaters at such and such a time coming really soon. Get excited. It is just very bizarre to me the way that the streaming services neglect theatrical releases coming to their platforms.
1: Yeah, they don't advertise it ahead of time. Just It just shows up and then you get the email from them and saying, hey, this movie is now on, now on our service. You should watch it. The interesting thing here is the information we have says that this showed up on Paramount Plus on July 25th, which is not where these ratings are. That's, you know, another week away. There is information that says it released on digital on July 11th, which would make sense for these ratings. Is it possible this is PVOD numbers and they're just listing it as Paramount Plus because that's where it's headed once it arrives on streaming?
2: This was... Wouldn't it be the first time we've seen a title show up on the ratings before it's supposed to show up, and mm-hmm. and what we speculated in the past was that we were seeing PVOD numbers. And if it is, David, you're thinking that's that's an insanely good number for PVOD.
3: Especially for this title, generally, you can pick a type. This would suggest, based on the PVOD behaviors that I've tracked recently with streaming, it's much more family-friendly. Like, I want to say the title we discussed last time was, was it Sing 2? That sounds familiar to me.
1: Yeah, something like that.
3: That sort of thing. Is this skewing that young?
1: I mean, it's possible that it's it's robots and explosions. So sure, maybe, you know, that's kid friendly enough.
3: So this actually takes us to a larger discussion that we were having behind the scenes the other day. This is going to kind of completely blow up the ratings discussion. I apologize in advance for that, Tim. But we're witnessing a reinvention of the way studios earn money on films. And what I mean by that was we knew historically how it worked. We've discussed it on the podcast. You get box office revenue. And then you get money from like HBO to get that exclusive window. And then you would get money from the cable channels, which would get rights to the films after they left the premium services. And then the best ones of those would actually air on network television in prime time. So they get paid by the network. And then they would go back and they would have their life cycle where they would run just indefinitely on cable if they were good. And in between that, we also had either video cassette cells or we had DVD slash Blu-ray cells. That's the way it worked. Now we're rebuilding that model on the fly as everyone figures out how the math works on what is still emerging technology, at least from the financial side, the technology we've had 15 years. But figuring out how to monetize it in a way that makes sense for people, that's where the Challenges, and we are starting to get a new way here which is you start selling titles on digital before you actually air them in any other way. In other words, they debut in the theater and then you sell them on Apple, on Amazon, and on Vudu. And it turns out that when you do that and when you also do pay-per-view sales, that money is adding up. And I mean, it is adding up in a way Iger was commenting on it the other day as surprisingly lucrative. I have seen David Zaslov say the same thing. There's more money there than anybody had anticipated. So they're squeezing that in before it goes to streaming. And then after it goes to streaming, they're now doing a thing you're talking about a lot, Tim, which is what?
1: We were having this discussion the other day where there's the growth of the fast services, because that's the future.
3: And that is what we used to call the cable channels. And when stuff was, you know, local syndicated programming, where you're getting licensing money in perpetuity from your titles, either the ones that are really bad and thereby cheap, or the ones that are really good and thereby always pop a rating when you have them on. And then after that, they're still going to go ahead and they're going to license the stuff on cable and on network television until those things are just dead. So we have a new business model and it's actually got more tiers to it than it's previously had. The one we have the least transparency about is what we're figuring out right now when you discuss this. Is Rise (laughs) of the Beasts that type of film where it has just exploded in popularity in digital cells and pay-per-views. I don't know it would be weird not unheard of and not impossible but it would just be
1: weird and this is the frustration we have coming from the background of movie box office where you got probably 9 you know 90% of the picture and now we have i mean almost the opposite we have like what if what sometimes feels like 10% of the picture
3: completely agreed
1: so now i'm curious what happens in the the next the next two weeks because i would not be surprised to see it here from paramount plus but according to the information we have it was not on paramount plus at this time
3: Really won't even know unless the Paramount Plus number in two weeks is significantly bigger. Mm-hmm. And if it's not here in two weeks, I, I'm just going to throw my hands up in the air and give up. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs>
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's worth mentioning here now, again, how it is that Nielsen collects these numbers. It basically monitors what is playing on your television without any understanding of what the source is, which is why when a series that has played on multiple different streaming services and maybe seasons three and five are on one streaming service and four and eight are on a different streaming service, Nielsen doesn't know this. Nielsen only knows that this series is playing. And so when they list those episodes, they say, here's this series that has played played on streaming services A, B and C with a total cumulative number of viewed minutes of whatever the number is. What they have determined now from what we're seeing here is that so many people were watching Transformers Rise of the Beasts on their television, regardless of what the source was, that it made it to the Nielsen charts and Nielsen had to look at their sources and say, hmm, what is this? What streaming service is this on? And they said, oh, it's got to be Paramount Plus. And that is what they wrote. They filled that in by hand.
3: Folks, let me very very clear as we talk about all this we're in the wild wild west with all of this and there's no such thing as transparency and tim we're just throwing logic out the window a lot of things
1: (laughs) yeah it's it's 20 years of box office knowledge and trends and patterns just just out the window because of just goofiness like 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 this so yeah it's very funny but there it is and speaking of giving up in seventh is captain underpants the first epic movie, 210 million minutes. Nope, not a new movie. This this was from 2017, but for reasons that only certain people understand, it arrived on Netflix on July 10th. So
0: sure, whatever.
3: It is a beloved children's novel and a
0: fairly well-regarded film. so It is. It's one of those you can just park your kids in front of easily, and it's a name that kids recognize, Mm -hmm. I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not upset it's here. It's just because the whole licensing nightmare that is these movies just being traded back and forth between services and just randomly showing up on Netflix in the middle of the month from wherever the hell it was before, you know, being a DreamWorks production that was released by Fox, I guess maybe it was in the hands of Disney at the time. I have no idea. And it was on Hulu. I have no idea.
3: I'll just say this. I'm glad it happens for something like this, which, you know, the review for it on Rotten Tomatoes is in the 80 percentile range. I think it was like Mm -hmm. 85 last time I looked. It's 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 positive review. Yes, absolutely. And also, you know, a high quality product. I can at least defend this as opposed to the dragged across the concretes we get that you just, (laughs) you worry and you weep for the future.
1: Yeah, we, we may or may not have one of those uh, in the remaining three movies, but eighth from Disney Plus is Moana, 209 million minutes. And ninth from Netflix, The Tudor, 203 million minutes. This is a um, movie that allegedly had a theatrical release this year, but had no reported box office. It's supposedly released in March. It came to Netflix on July 8th, starring Garrett Hedlund, Noah Schnapp, and Victoria Justice. Okay, sure.
0: But just why?
1: Why? Right. That's ex- exactly. Yes. Exactly. Why? That's that's why I want to know the people who watch this. If you watch this movie, please contact us. Movies wraps up with Avatar The Way of Water that has been here for some time now, but down to 165 million minutes. Again, Disney Plus and Max is where you can find this one. Acquired is once again led by Suits. Just another 3.7 billion minutes 136 episodes good for another you know 250 <laughs> bucks in residuals
2: for some writer clawing its way to 4 billion well yeah will, will it get there will
1: it get there my As goodness work their way through this series clearly because there were multiple seasons oh god i
0: didn't even make it all the way through this series on its original run <laughs>
1: We should know Bluey from Disney Plus in second. 1.3 billion. Ooh, way to yeah. go, Bluey. Where'd that come from?
0: That's awesome, actually. <laughs> I like to see it
1: right? We were always wondering for the longest time when it wasn't here, David's like, where's Bluey? Where's the Simpsons and where's Bluey? But now Bluey has been pretty dominant. Oh, wow. It's been here. It's pretty consistently on this chart. 1.3 billion. That's impressive, actually. We'd be going crazy over that if it wasn't for Suits. And other than that, it is 10 shows we've seen before. Returning in 10th is Outlander, 446 million minutes for 71 episodes. And I drove David momentarily insane trying to sort out exactly what's going on with this show. It airs on Stars, and then eventually the episodes show up on Netflix. The seventh season is currently airing. It premiered in June and finished the first half of its seventh season in August. There'll be eight more episodes for its seventh season sometime next year, and then there'll be an eighth season. We've seen it here before, so I I don't have the exact information, but I'm going to guess recent episodes may have shown up in the recent past, or maybe it's one of those shows that's just in the next 10 that we never get to see. Uh, But yeah, that's all I have for this week. We're waiting for the the next big thing. We are going to see The Lincoln Lawyer and uh, The Witcher jump back up to the top as we hit the end of July, beginning of August. As the second parts of those shows arrive, Will Suits keep up this momentum? What the hell is going on? And that was a really interesting discussion that we had about the whole Transformers nonsense and and just the transparency that we do not have with these numbers, but it's always fun to talk about.
0: As always, we close out the show with what's been keeping us busy over the past week, and we did watch the first couple of episodes of Only Murders in the Building. First episode has a bit of a surprise twist ending, actually, but good stuff. I always enjoy them together. I think that the three core players in Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez are all so fun. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens the rest of the year. And Meryl Streep is a fun addition as well.
2: Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Raul, how about you? Well, I promised I would watch Killing It on Peacock. I watched season one and I'm sorry, I thought this was a comedy. Evidently it is not. This is the series on Peacock starring Craig Robinson as a guy in Florida who's trying to make ends meet so he can support his daughter. Just to give you a taste of how dark this series is, it starts with a flashback to when Craig was a little kid and his dad dragged him to a convenience store to turn in some candy he'd stolen. His dad then gets killed In a holdup. The crux of the series is that Craig, which is the name of his character, needs $20,000 to start a farm, but banks won't loan him the money. But then he runs across Jillian, played by Australian Claudia O'Doherty, who lets him in on the business of killing pythons in Florida for cash. If they can win a contest, Craig will get his $20,000. Jillian has her own dark past, as her father died when she was in high school, and her stepmother will call the cops whenever she visits. So she's living in a billboard, she drives around towed behind her car. There are a few hints of humor throughout, but the whole series tends to put you on edge as every action seems to bring our characters closer to some catastrophic climax. The supporting cast, including O'Doherty, is surprisingly strong. Rel Battle plays Craig's brother, Isaiah, and Stephanie Noguras plays Craig's ex-wife, Camille, who's deaf. It's nice to see differently abled people portrayed positively in the show. With all that being said, as a drama Killing It presents a compelling narrative. Craig Robinson is always a pleasure to watch. Season two is coming up this week on Peacock, and the cliffhanger was enough to keep me coming back for more. But at least now I know not to expect a knee-slapping comedy.
0: Okay, and so do we. (laughs) (laughs) and Tim I think I know what's been keeping you busy but how about you tell our fans
1: yeah so I waited most of the week but I I eventually picked up Baldur's Gate 3 because I just couldn't stop seeing things about how how great it is and even though I've only played it for like an hour and a half yeah it seems pretty great Uh, I was just super paralyzed with choice in terms of because it is basically a Dungeons and Dragons game so you get to you know choose from a wide variety of races and then they all have the available classes and it's, it's like like, do I want this? Do I want that? What do I want to do? And it, obviously what you pick will have a big impact on how the game plays out for you. The role-playing just from a little bit is outstanding. You are basically, you know, you're making choices and you are rolling skill checks just just like you would in an actual, you know, tabletop D&D campaign. Um, the combat is, you know, strategic and turn-based and I'm not sure if I like it so far, but it's not the crux of the game. It, it is all about the role-playing and the questing and the interaction between the characters that actually I have a vague familiarity with from the Magic the Gathering Dungeons & Dragons set they put out that was in the same realm. So that's very funny that I recognized a lot of the names. Yeah, I expect it to consume uh, my existence for the the next little while and I may just keep rolling characters just because that's almost the fun of, of Dungeons & Dragons sometimes.
0: And David, how about you?
3: So we finished watching Strange New Worlds. It was a hilarious turn of events. As I've mentioned before, Jim is a Star Wars fan and I'm more of the Star Trek fan in the relationship. After the crossover episode with Forbidden Dax, Kim said, we need to start watching this show. And in a matter of three weeks, we are now caught up with all of it. We have seen every episode of both seasons. We did not watch any of it in order. Uh, As a matter of fact, we watch it haphazardly. But the season finale of season two... I'm just going to go ahead and spoil it. It features the Gorn, who also appeared once in season one. And what we did after we watched this tense, dramatic episode of the season finale, we watched the original appearance of William Shatner versus the Gorn in Star Trek and Kiss. (laughs) It did not age well, did it?
0: No, it did not. In fact, I would strongly recommend that you find a video of this on YouTube. Go back and watch Captain Kirk versus the Gorn because it is hilarious. The fight is very silly. The difference between the Gorn on the original series and the Gorn on Strange New Worlds is a wild gaping hole.
3: And that's my point here is realistically, we're probably not going to have the Borg on this and so they have a villain gap where everything's kind of written out with the Klingons and the Romulans and so they went a different way with it and they were like what if we assume the Gorn were more like creatures from Alien but more terrifying and that is legitimately what they've done because if you watch this episode in particular you'll realize that these Apex Predators are not senseless killing machines they have mastered work technology. They understand military and political considerations like a line of demarcation. And oh yes, they have designed masks that allow them to breathe in the vacuum of space, but they'll eat you. Humans are food to them and nothing else. And that concept works. Strange New Worlds is A plus television. I'm kicking myself that we were watching it from day one, but honestly, it probably worked out better that we discovered it almost by accident
0: because we're head over heels in love, aren't we, Kim? Yes. David mentions I'm more of a Star Wars fan, which is true, but I have been an on and off Star Trek watcher, and I saw the first film in theaters, in fact, many, many, many years ago. It's good stuff. I'm hooked. The cast is fantastic, and the storytelling is amazing. Even if you're not a Star Trek fan, it's a show that you would enjoy. Thank you for listening to Streaming Into the Void. Please consider subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and we welcome your feedback. Remember that we're on social media at Streaming Void and online at StreamingVoid.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Be sure to watch for us again next week.